Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 11th of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. With me in the studio, Mike Robinson, and we're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson, who is going to be speaking to us from sunny Texas in the USA. Um, Okay, we're going to start today with a Mail article. Um, The headline is RAF intelligence officers joined Whitehall and Army in spying on COVID lockdown critics, including David Davis and Peter Hitchens. Uh, And they're talking about uh, having received uh, some documentation showing that that RAF intelligence uh, was working with uh, government cells, counter disinformation unit based in the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport and the Rapid Response Unit in the cabinet office. Now, of course, uh, what I'll say straight away here is this should really only be a surprise to anybody that hasn't been watching the UK column because we've been talking about this for a very long time. So let's just remind ourselves about the uh, government censorship network diagram that we have. Uh, And of course, on the right hand side here under the cabinet office, we have the rapid response unit as they they mentioned in the mail article, the DCMS counter disinformation unit, as they mentioned in the mail article. We've got others there like the National Security Communications team. 77 Brigade, uh, FCDO counter disinformation team, the FOI Clearinghouse, others that I haven't listed on here because there isn't room, for example, 13 Signals and a whole bunch of others as well. So, you know, the the significance of what the government has been building over the last five or six years is really incredible. Uh, But what the mail is is talking about is uh, military working with civilian uh, government infrastructure. Um, And of course, this comes... Uh, from the National Security Capability Review in 2018, uh, which launched what they described as the Fusion Doctrine, which was all about building a culture of common purpose across departments, which requires improved accountability to shift incentives and behaviours before a more genuinely whole of government approach, a more genuinely whole of government approach. So uh, that Fusion Doctrine, as stated then, has expanded even further over the years. Uh, So we can maybe define it more along these lines, government, intelligence agencies, military, police, media, social media platforms, NGOs, think tanks, and so-called influencers all working together. Uh, And that is increasingly what we are looking at at the moment. Now, of course, this business of uh, military and civilian institutions operating together is nothing new. If we go back to 2018, uh, we talked about this at the time. This was the European Defence Matters Conference held by the European Defence Agency. And there you see uh, Jens Stoltenberg and Federica Mogherini. Uh, They were, well, very close, shall we say, at that time. Uh, But they were talking about exactly this. And Mogherini had said uh, that basically in 2018, we need to merge military and policing functions. This is what they were talking about. This is something the British government has been pushing for a long time as well. And of course, if we move forward a couple of years, Uh, to 2020. Uh, Here is Dominic Raab, who was the Foreign Secretary at the time, uh, talking about how great it was. The sight of our armed forces working side by side with NHS staff offers reassurance we will come through this crisis. And it's crisis uh, which is the driving factor here, uh, because what are we actually talking about? Uh, Well, here's fact sheet 14 from the British government. Uh, This is all about military aid to the civil authorities, and they call this MACA. Uh, The review, they say, this is the Defence Security Review, ensures that defence will contribute effectively to civil crises and emergencies in the UK, balancing this requirement against other tasks. The ability of civil authorities, such as local authorities and the police, 
to respond to a wide range of potential crises from widespread flooding to a major terrorist event has been strengthened significantly in recent years. However, military assets may sometimes be required to provide assistance in specific circumstances. This is known as military aid to the civil authorities, brackets MACA. The review has ensured that the right balance is struck between making forces available to provide this aid and other military tasks, both at home and overseas. And of course, the other feature of that defence review, because that term both at home and overseas is very important, because the other uh, uh, issue in the defence review that they were talking about was how home can no longer be viewed as a place of safety for the military. Uh, Home is now a place of combat, just as abroad is, um, because of course they're talking about hybrid warfare, information warfare and so on. Uh, And then to follow on with that, it goes on to say the Strategic Defence and Security Review will strengthen existing arrangements to improve the military contribution to national uh, crisis management, to further improve the the effectiveness of existing military support, we will strengthen central government's crisis management capability. This will bring together civil servants and police with new permanently based defence specialists in the Cabinet Office Uh, The strengthened crisis management capability will enhance the government's ability to prepare, plan and manage its response to domestic security crises. And of course, these crises are increasingly being manufactured by government itself uh, because we're looking at what's being described as the poly crisis uh, heading down uh, towards us. So uh, when we're under this uh, stress of permanent crisis, of course, this justifies the, the merging of military civilian infrastructures that uh, we are looking at a militarized state and it's not like we haven't seen this type of infrastructure building in previous or other regimes over the decades and centuries uh, absolutely right mike uh, just stress for our audience that of course the daily mail article and what took place was based on covid and the lockdown so it was the covid crisis which the government used in order to enact this state surveillance uh, but i'm going to say that well i'm going to ask a question do david davis and does peter hitchens do they really understand what they're amongst i think at the moment they think that there's been a little bit of spying on them what they don't realize is that information will have been passed on to a whole host of other people and they will be now labelled and tracked. So will the Daily Mail follow up on it? They published 10 pages on common purpose once they'd uh, followed through on the UK column research, uh, but then true to form, that all just slid away into the long grass. But as Mike's shown you on screen, common purpose very much one of the key topics that is still there in the background, the uniting of all these government departments in what we would say is a criminal common purpose. But let's move on to the subject of prevent, because this is the next bit that goes with with it. And uh, we've uh, mentioned several times that uh, a few days ago, Debbie Evans and myself did a, a No Smoke Without Fire episode on Prevent and the excellent research work that Debbie had done. Um, if you haven't seen this uh, discussion, encourage you to go onto the UK column website, look for the uh, burning fire there and listen to what we're talking about, look at the documents. But of course, what, what this demonstrates is a web of organizations passing information on people, much of it anecdotal, um, much of it without evidence base. It's a label 
that if you say certain things or you do certain things or you fail to do certain things, uh, then the state regards you as far right and or an extremist. So I'm just going to add, is it the case that Peter Hitchens and Daily Mail uh, are now also in the bracket of being labelled extremist? Well, let's move on to the delicate subject of Gaza, and I want to pick up on some images which were, were moving around, particularly on social media over the weekend. I found these very disturbing, and I particularly found them disturbing that people on social media were looking at the men. We can see in the background here, they are in their underpants, they're kneeling, They've got their hands uh, bound behind their backs. These are people being deliberately humiliated in public and stressed. Um, and uh, many people were laughing at these pictures. And, um, uh, well, I, I, it's difficult for me to describe. It was so appalling what was happening. But this is a picture, and obviously the Israeli forces have rounded these men up. Here's another picture that was circulating of the same sort of individuals. I can't say exactly the same men in two trucks, one in the foreground and one you can see in the background moving away. Um, they are also stripped. They are bound and uh, their status and future is unknown. But clearly they have been uh, treated um, badly. Uh, another picture. Now, I don't know whether this is in Gaza. I've just said Israel because maybe this is in the um, uh, other areas within Israel itself. Um, but again, stripped, bound, blindfolded. I've said deliberately stressed, but actually if they're in this position for uh, more than a few minutes, they're going to suffer quite intense pain. And uh, in my book, this is men being humiliated and tortured. But who are they? Are they Hamas? We don't know. And um, if we then come on to the BBC, uh, I was fascinated at this pathetic effort by BBC Verify. They were looking at a video clip of, this, of similar sort of things. But in this video clip, bizarrely, the stripped men are putting weapons down. So this is some of the images that the BBC put, and they are questioning what was happening here because presumably the Israelis would have uh, stripped these individuals in order to search them for weapons. Why would men who've already been stripped be putting weapons down? So the BBC commentary was very interesting because they say it's unclear whether the man is surrendering the weapons or just moving them as instructed. Uh, he's in his, his underwear and he cannot have been concealing them on his person. It's unlikely Israeli troops did, did not know about these weapons, suggesting this may be performed for the camera rather than an act of authentic surrender. We don't know if he or any of the other individuals in the video have any involvement with Hamas or the 7th of October attack. So um, they're asking some good questions, but they're not getting to the meat of it. But here's another photograph, and I thought this was very significant because, of course, now we can see that it's dark and uh, we've got a flashlight on these men. Uh, they are stripped and they're bound and they're being held at gunpoint by Israelis. Um, but the key thing is, what is the temperature? Because this is nighttime. This is nighttime temperatures. So they're physically and mentally stressed. That is tortured due to the enforced sitting position with hands bound behind their backs 
in cold conditions. And of course, their stress condition is further compounded by fear and uncertainty. So who are these? Are, are these men Hamas? Do we call them terrorists? Or are they civilian men simply rounded up by the Israelis in Gaza for a uh, video show to the world? We have no idea. And uh, if I just stress the the point here about the temperature, I've gone to winter sun expert, but here it's talking about Israel, uh, talking about warmest temperatures in December can get as high as 28 degrees C, but it's saying at the end of the night, it can get as low as four degrees C. So if our audience imagines being in their underwear, kneeling in gravel for hours during the night of darkness at four degrees C, we might have uh, some understanding of what happening to the men. But uh, the BBC gave some quotes, and of course, uh, uh, they were going to quote Netanyahu. Uh, he said, in recent days, dozens of, dozens of Hamas terrorists have surrendered to our forces. They're laying down their weapons and handing themselves over to our heroic fighters. Uh, no evidence for this provided, just the quotes. It'll take more time. The war is in full swing, but this is the beginning of the end for Hamas. Does he actually mean the final destruction of Gaza here, Mike? I think this is much more likely. And um, the BBC article went on to give an anonymous quote from the Israeli Defence Forces, detained individuals are treated in accordance with international law. And uh, it's often necessary for terrorist suspects to hand over their clothes such that their clothes can be searched and to ensure that they're not concealing explosive vests or other weaponry. Uh, well, OK, we can say that appears to be a fair statement. But wouldn't we expect that once the individuals have been searched and their clothing searched, that they are then allowed to dress themselves again? I find it difficult to see where Israel is going on this policy. And I haven't seen anything like it in any other combat conditions. So I think a lot of questions to be asked. Um, but if people want to go and do a little bit of research, you can have a look at what the Geneva Convention says relative to the treatment of prisoners of war. Um, so there's some general statements here. Um, it says, in addition to the provisions which shall be implemented in peacetime, the present convention shall apply to all cases of declared war or of any other armed conflict which may arise between more two or more of the high contracting parties, even if the state of war is not recognised by one of them. But please read the text for yourself. And it goes on here to say the persons taking no active part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces who have laid down their weapons and those placed order combat by sickness, wounds, detention or any other cause, shall in all circumstances be treated humanely without any adverse distinction founded on race, colour, religion or faith, sex, birth or wealth or any other similar criteria. And I'll just go down to point A here, violence to life and persons, including um, in particular murder of all kinds, mutilation, cruel uh, treatment and torture. And uh, there's one more here, outrages upon personal dignity in particular, humiliating or degrading treatment. And I'm pretty confident, Mike, that's what we're seeing here. Um, it goes on more, Article 4, Prisoners of War, um, and uh, please have a read of this. Uh, now, some astute person will pick up in 2D. It's talking about 
that they conduct their operations in accordance with the laws and customs of war. And we have to take a view on what's been happening in the occupied territory. But nevertheless, it seems to me the onus is on Israel as the civilized authority uh, to be treating these men properly. Now, what I just want to end on is while the media has been preoccupied with that, we shouldn't forget about the bombing taking place um, inside Gaza. Uh, it's very interesting that a lot of recent footage of the horrific attacks and large bomb blasts in Gaza seem to have disappeared um, from certainly from YouTube and from the mainstream media reports. Uh, but the reality is, of course, that while we now have screens of men in their underpants, in their underpants, the reality is the massive destruction of civilian areas in Gaza continues. And it would appear that we don't want to call for peace. Um, Mike, we would much rather give the Israelis the extra time to finish off Gaza before the Americans pull the rug from under them and say, well, we can't really stomach any more of this violence, which is largely targeted at civilians, men, women, and particularly children who cannot escape from the combat zone. So I'm going to say that my own view from looking at this material over the weekend is the sheer horror of the fact that we can allow Israel to be uh, killing particularly women and children in an area from which those civilians can't escape. Okay. So where does that take us? That brings us to... Uh... Um, to to Mark. Mark. Welcome to the program, Mark. What have you got for us? Good day, gentlemen. Uh, something not very pleasant, especially in the wake of what Brian just explained. This is the so-called friendship video uh, produced by uh, an Israeli uh, production unit. And we can look at that in just a moment. I'll just mention that it was taken down almost immediately by YouTube. It did not meet YouTube standards. I had to get it from a other independent news website, a Mr. Owen Jones. And the video is pretty self-explanatory in a sense. So let's go ahead and show that and I'll have some brief commentary and go from there.
I forgot to mention that it is sung in Hebrew with English subtitles, uh, a very disturbing and unsettling video production, to say the least, given the context of what's going on. Uh, we can show a couple isolated slides that I uh, pulled out of it. Uh, this is one of them. In another year, there will, there will be nothing there. I repeat, in another year, there will be nothing there, referring evidently to Gaza. And this one, particularly uh, eyebrow lifting, within a year, we will annihilate everyone. Repeat, within a year, we will annihilate everyone. Uh, and we'll go on from there. It's called The Friendship Song. Well, that's a tough one to swallow. The Friendship Song 2023. Here's a little hint about who put it out, produced by Rosenbaum. And I can go on to show a little bit of background and where this came from to a sufficient degree. First of all, Euronews did a fact check. Did Israeli children really sing about annihilating everyone in Gaza? The answer is evidently yes. Uh, here's a little background. There's the producer, Ofer Rosenbaum. There's a picture of him. Not exactly a, a cheery-looking chap, you might say. Uh, the children in the video re are reportedly from the Gaza envelope settlements, which lie within seven kilometers of the Gaza Strip. Their populations were evacuated following the reported Hamas attack on 7 October. Turns out the video is indeed real and was posted by the Israeli group The Civil Front. And Mr. Rosenbaum leads the Civil Front, reportedly. According to their website, they claim to be apolitical and say their goal is to raise support for the Israeli army. The video is entitled Friendship Song 2023 and is an adaptation, we're told, of a famous poem commemorating Jews killed in the run-up to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. The original song does not contain hostile lyrics toward Gaza, unlike the 2023 adaptation, and that's according to the French newspaper Liberation. The lyrics have been slammed by the international community as being genocidal, just as the UN experts have warned that serious violations allegedly committed by Israel against Palestinians point to a genocide in the making, quote-unquote. Middle East Eye reported that the new lyrics were co-written by Mr. Rosenbaum, the chairperson of the Civil Front. And uh, there's a poster campaign. I believe I have something on that coming up in this. Uh, let's move on from there. Yeah, this, this traces back to Mr. Rosenbaum's poster campaign, which is evidently still ongoing. This happens to be a late October dispatch from the Jerusalem Post. So this is the Jewish press itself. Never again, Tel Aviv's controversial billboard campaign. The billboards feature images of the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah being held captive by Israeli security forces. And so Mr. Rosenbaum is about that. Uh, he's behind that, and the Civil Front is the organization that's doing it. So um, that's an uh, encapsulation of what this is all about, guys. Uh, Mark, if, if I may, I, I just want to say when we use the term Israel, but of course we know that there are many, many um, people within the Jewish community who are not happy um, to be branded under this system and are pointing a finger at their own government and saying, not in our name. And I think we should recognize those Jewish people who are speaking up actually in their thousands and thousands to say what's being done is not in our name. 
I think we need to recognise those people uh, because we have the same problem here in the UK or the US with a government that is out of control. Um, okay, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, uh, you can do so at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership very much appreciated, uh, but please uh, do consider picking something up at the UK column shop as well. Uh, and uh, also share any of the material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, um, uh, an interesting email came in on the subject of uh, Prevent. Uh, so, No Smoke Without Fire Part 5, that was on Prevent. It's from a lady called Carol, and she says, we're way ahead here in Dorset. 2008, uh, council snooped parents, uses anti-terror laws to spy on fishermen. Uh, council, which sparked outrage by spying on a family to check they lived in the right catchment area, has used the same surveillance powers to snoop on fishermen. Paul Borough Council has been following shellfish pickers under legislation designed to track terrorists. And the second one from theguardian.com, uh, local government, UK crime, a council yesterday admitted using laws designed to track serious criminals to spy on a family for nearly three weeks to find out if they were lying about living in a school catchment area. So it's good to see that people are picking up on the seriousness of the UK column reports about Prevent. I'll just add this one as well from Deborah. And she said, were we aware of Operation Snap from Devon and Cornwall Police? Well, we certainly won't. Debbie said, uh, turning us against each other, I do not see this as their role. Uh, what is all this about? Well, it's Devon and Cornwall Police inviting anybody with a dash cam video showing uh, somebody doing something silly or wrong or dangerous to fill in this police form. I'll let it run on screen. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's asking for de your, your details, your address and details, a statement, location of the incident, registration of offending vehicle. Uh, was the offending vehicle in relation, where was the offending vehicle in relation to you when the incident happened? And then it goes on to ask, are you prepared to go to court? And if so, will you upload evidence? And what the lady is highlighting is that this is soliciting the public to be spying on each other and reporting them, not an individual who's seen something which is clearly dangerous and they know they should bring to the uh, attention of the police. This is the police soliciting for individuals to not only spy on each other, uh, but to go as so far as to help process, <coughs> excuse me, the whole thing through the court. Mm. So I was quite astonished, but this is Devon and Cornwall Police, and I would guess that it may well be taking place in other constabulary areas around the country. So have a look into that. And uh, another one here, um, we're going to say we are aware of this. This is the uh, gentleman in New Zealand. Well, ben mentioned it on Friday. Good. Okay. Thank you, Mike. But I just wanted to recognise for Chris who emailed us. Uh, we are aware of this. We will be doing more on it. And yes, it's an incredible story as to what ha has happened to this individual. So um, some acknowledgement there. And uh, this one here is a very positive one. It says some months ago, Ray and I were given the opportunity to speak to our local councillor when she came to our front door. I think it was about the same time Sandy spoke to Glastonbury councillors and you subsequently interviewed her. 
Our counsellor had no idea as to the agenda in store for us. She emailed me to say thank you. So I sent her more links. This, this is all about clean air zones and agenda 2030. Um, the email goes on to say, until this afternoon, I wasn't sure of her further response. Anyhow, she told us she'd submitted a motion which had been passed with one amendment, one amendment without which Pauline said it would not have passed. So Wokingham uh, District Council have said they will not be implementing ULIS unless air quality is seriously compromised. So uh, Margaret here, who sent in the, in, in the uh, email, said that this is a success that's come about due to information from UK Column backed up by what our viewer uh, and her partner has done. So well done to you, Margaret. And this one a little bit poignant, but it popped up in my email uh, chain today. I'm not quite sure how it came because it's back in 2018. It's uh, from Robert Green, and he's saying, never underestimate the power of blackmail. Throughout the lands, people of all views and political persuasions must surely be wondering how it can be that politicians frequently appear to act against overwhelming public opinion. It should never be forgotten how Tim Fortescue, former chief whip in Edward Heath's government, explained in his astonishing BBC TV interview how Westminster politicians were controlled by blackmail in order to vote as directed after their misdemeanours were discovered. As Mr Fortescue admitted, such misdemeanours could include the sexual abuse of children. Is this method of control? Sorry, is this method of control a thing of the past or is it still being utilised at this present time? I don't know, of course. Now, he does say some more, which we'll leave you to have a look at. But what he's showing on this uh, extra section is that uh, when an MP said that he would help Robert Green in the case of Holly Gregg, the Down syndrome little girl who was abused, that MP was warned off by saying, You've had a little liaison some years ago. Do you really want to help Mr. Green and risk losing your wife and family? Or would it be better for you to do nothing? Is that still happening? I would guess it is. Uh, now, uh, a number of years ago, if you were watching UK Column at that time, you'll know that we uh, had a little run in with Ofcom and their subsidiary, the Authority for Television On Demand. Uh, and at that time, uh, we were contacted by uh, this organisation, um, the uh, Sex and Censorship. Um, and Sex and Censorship produce a newsletter. It's by uh, a guy called Jerry Barnett. And this is their latest one uh, and is entitled What the F is a Zionist. Uh, so I just want to run through a little bit of what he's saying here. First of all, he's talking about Steph from New York uh, tweeting out, uh, talking about uh, Zionist got bro shook for real is what uh, it said in the tweet. Uh, and he was responding by saying, you know, are you an admitted, uh, uh, of course, we're a superpower, we're everywhere, didn't you know? He replied in McCarthy terms, are you an admitted Zionist? And I answered, define Zionist. He would not, is what uh, Jerry Barnett is saying. Uh, and he goes on to say that uh, the Z word is ultra slippery. It has numerous meanings and implications depending on who's using it and the context. Uh, using uh, this not particularly subtle slice of sleight of hand, the anti-Semitic propaganda of the 1930s has been resurrected almost intact. Today, Zionist is often used as a direct substitute for Jew, since it enables overt anti-Semitism to be expressed without breaching hate speech rules or social taboos. Uh, and he goes on to, to talk about what Zionism is. 
uh, and he claims that to call someone a Zionist in 2023 doesn't necessarily mean much if the word is being used in its original sense. Zionism was a movement among the far-flung Jewish diaspora of the 18th, uh, 19th, 20th centuries. Uh, the aim of the movement was to build a Jewish state in the Levant uh, at the heart of the diaspora, a safe space, safe space to use the terminology of the modern American left. Uh, and uh, he's basically saying that it no longer exists. Uh, the moment Israel was established, the Zionist movement effectively ended. Zionists became Israelis. Uh, there were no more Zionists in the original sense, any more than there are Chartists in Britain or abolitionists in the United States. To be a Zionist after 1948 was simply to support the principle that Jews uh, had the right to exist free from massacres, pogroms, and genocides. And of course, none of this is correct. Uh, but now he says the term began to be used maliciously. Um, and of course, uh, what he's not recognizing is the way that the uh, Israeli uh, regime is quite happy to hide behind this claim uh, that Zionism, a criticism of Zionism is somehow a criticism of Judaism and Jewishness, uh, which of course it isn't. Uh, but let's uh, just look at who's really pushing hardest on this issue of Zionism and the fact that the claim that Zionism exists, uh, because it does. Uh, Nikki Haley, of course, a warmonger herself, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. She's pushing that very hard. Who else is pushing this? Well, Michael Gove uh, is a proud Zionist, according to the Jewish Chronicle. Of course, he said this many times. Uh, David Cameron, the current foreign secretary, I'm a Zionist. I believe in a Jewish homeland. So he's clearly identifying as a Zionist, no matter what uh, sex and censorship are saying about Zionism and whether it exists or not. Plenty of people seem to believe that it does, uh, but they also seem to be uh, people perhaps that aren't Jewish themselves, but let's not leave it with uh, British. And I say again, you need not be a Jew to be a Zionist. The fact is that since then, I've known every single prime minister and it's been an honor. So you don't even need to be a Jew to be a Zionist these days. Well, here are some Jews, and let's see what they're saying about uh, Zionism. This is Torah Judaism on uh, the uh, on Twitter, of course, or X. Uh, Judaism is never Zionism, they say. Judaism is a religion, and Zionism is a political ideology and has nothing to do with Judaism. How can being against Zionism count as being against Jews or Judaism? Zionism is a political ideology created a century ago by Zionist leaders who did not even believe in Judaism. Being against Zionism is never anti-Semitism. Criticizing Israel is never anti-Semitism. Zionism is not Judaism. Israel is not a Jewish state, and so on. So I don't really see how that can be criticized too heavily unless <laughs> there's an agenda at work here. But as I say, uh, the point is that many of the people that are pushing the idea of Zionism the hardest at the moment aren't Jews themselves. Uh, and so tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m., uh, we're premiering this interview that I have done with uh, Clifford Kirikoff. Uh, we're calling this Dark Crusade after his book. This is a look at the origins of Christian Zionism in particular. Uh, and really, this uh, Cliff's uh, uh, description and, and explanation of what's going on is fantastic. And so I would encourage everybody uh, to watch that if possible. And we've, we've all got a lot to learn uh, about this subject. but. Uh... We've got to get to the bottom of things and we've got to basically get a ceasefire and peace in Gaza as the uh, first step, it seems to me at least. Uh, Mark, uh, let's come back to you. And uh, Bernie Sanders, let's go to the United States and what's going on with uh, arming Israel? 
Well, Bernie Sanders, as many know, is a Jewish U.S. senator. He was Democratic. He went independent. And it kind of goes in, in tandem with what you're saying just now, Mike, about Zionism. Not all Jewish politicians agree with Israel's war policies, and Bernie is very outspoken. One thing you can depend on with Bernie, you don't have to agree with him, but you are always getting <clears throat> his honest opinion. He's always straight up about what he believes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, here's a news clip from his own official Senate website, News. Sanders' statement on voting no on $110.5 billion emergency foreign aid supplemental bill. Of that $110.5 billion, about $10 billion or a little more would be earmarked for Israel. But going on, December 6th, this is dated, after voting against the $110.5 billion emergency foreign aid supplemental bill that came before the Senate recently, Sanders, an independent from Vermont, released the following statement. I voted no on the foreign aid supplemental bill today for one reason. I do not believe that we should give the right-wing extremist Netanyahu, Netanyahu government an additional $10.1 billion with no strings attached to continue their inhumane war against the Palestinian people. Israel does have the absolute right to defend itself against the Hamas terrorists who attacked them October 7. They do not have the legal or moral right to kill thousands of innocent, pal innocent Palestinian men, women, and children. So this is a Jewish U.S. senator making his views known very boldly. If he was a Republican, I think he'd have a tougher time. Anyway, I believe we have a video clip that um, supplements what I just read. Secondly, at a time when Congress will likely soon pass a $900 billion defense bill, this supplemental bill includes tens of billions that should be covered as part of the base defense budget and handled through normal appropriations, not allocated as emergency spending. We can save tens of billions of dollars in this bill and dedicate that money to some of the horrendous domestic crises that we face. Thirdly, and maybe most importantly, Madam President, at a time when some 16,000 Palestinians have been killed in the last two months, two-thirds of whom are women and children, and tens of thousands more have been injured. At a time when 1.8 million people, Palestinians, have been displaced from their homes and are struggling every day have been thrown out of their homes. They don't know where they're going. They are struggling to get food and water and medical supplies and fuel just to survive. And I want you to think about what's going on with the children, a lot of children in that country. What is going on psychically, them looking up in the sky, is a bomb gonna fall? Where am I spending the night? How do I get food? That's what's going on there right now. And Madam President, at a time when over 250 people have been killed in the West Bank, I'm not talking about Gaza, I'm talking about the West Bank since October 7th, and more than 1,000 Palestinians have been driven off of their land in the West Bank. No, in the midst of all of that, I do not believe we should be appropriating over $10 billion for the right-wing extremist Netanyahu government
to continue its current military approach. Mark, before you, you go on, I just want to make the point in, in the original statement uh, there, uh, Sanders said that Israel, he, he maintains Israel's right to defend itself. Well, uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about that when we come on to the Security Council in a minute. But uh, as an occupying power, of course, they don't. Yeah, that's a notable point, Mike. Um, I mean, as a general sense, any nation state has the right to defend itself, but it's a special circumstance there. And I've known people that have spent time there over the years, and you're right to point that out. And it's also notable here in this next slide, the Senate Republicans ended up blocking the very legislation that the Jewish Senator uh, Bernie Sanders was talking about. This is an AP dispatch. Senate Republicans block the Ukraine and Israeli aid as they demand border policy changes. The Republicans want a lot more from the Biden administration to protect the U.S. southern border. And so there's a lot of horse trading and, and um, jarring going on, a lot of, of uh, um, infighting, but a very notable thing there. Uh, so maybe Sanders did have some influence in slowing down that juggernaut at the very least. And uh, some other fallout from all of this, We and speaking of Zionism, uh, we have a, a uh, gadfly in the U.S. House, that's Thomas Massey of Kentucky, a, a very respectable congressman in many respects. And here's a NBC News headline that I put in here, White House calls Representative Thomas Massey's ex-post, that is Twitter, virulent anti-Semitism urges House GOP leadership to condemn him. And this is his uh, Twitter post, American patriotism, it shows a, a figure kind of uh, shunning away from it, but Zionism, well, then that person shown in the uh, Twitter post is all comfortable and all well with that. And this set off a paroxysm of fury, uh, showing how sensitive this is. But meanwhile, there's some more back-channel things going on. This is a New York Times post that was published in a Seattle newspaper. Uh, State Department bypasses Congress, get that, bypasses Congress to approve Israel's order for tank ammo. We have a little bit more detail on that. Washington, the State Department is pushing through a government sale to Israel of 13,000 rounds of tank ammo, bypassing a congressional review process that is generally required for arms sales to foreign nations. The State Department notified congressional committees at 11 p.m. Friday, I believe that was a week ago this past Friday, or it may have been this past Friday, that it was moving ahead with the sale valued at more than $106 million, even though Congress had not finished an informal review of a larger order from Israel for tank rounds. So there's a larger order waiting in the wings. The department invoked an emergency provision in the Arms Control, excuse me, Arms Export Control Act the State Department official and a congressional official told the New York Times, both speaking on condition of anonymity. There's the Times again, always using anonymous sources. We have a little bit more about Mr. Blinken. The Defense Department posted a notification on the sale before noon Saturday. It said Secretary of State Anthony Blinken had informed Congress on Friday that, emergency, that an emergency exists that requires the immediate sale. It's the first time the State Department had invoked the emergency provision for an arms shipment to this Middle East, uh, to the Middle East since May of 2019, back when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo approved weapons sales back then to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, a move that some lawmakers um, 
criticized. The State Department has used this emergency provision at least two times since 2022 to rush arms to Ukraine for its defense against Russia's invasion. And I think that pretty much sums it up. But um, yes, we have this back-channeling going on, even though the Sanders, uh, the bill that Sanders spoke on has been at least delayed. Back to you guys. Can I just say that, Mark, that, that uh, 13,000 rounds for the tanks, but the tanks aren't fighting other tanks or armoured vehicles. So those rounds are going to be used for destroying civilian infrastructure inside Gaza. Uh, so it follows on from the thousands of tonnes of American, possibly British bombs. Uh, but this is all designed to uh, conduct warfare inside the civilian areas. Um, so uh, let's bring the Security Council on screen and here is the uh, United States Deputy Permanent Representative to the Security Council giving what looks like a Nazi salute. I'm sure it wasn't. He was putting his hand up to to vote, uh, to invoke the veto uh, against a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, so let's just have a look at the, uh, the result of the vote. The result of the vote is as follows. 13 votes in favour, one against one abstention. El proyecto de the draft resolution has not been approved due to the veto of a permanent member of the Security Council. So the draft uh, resolution for a ceasefire di well, didn't go through. Uh, this is Barbara Woodward, the UK's permanent representative to, to the UN. Now she's very excited that the UK has not uh, used the veto for uh, many decades, and of course, uh, Britain refuses to do so. But this is what she said, calling for a ceasefire ignores the fact that Hamas has committed acts of terror and is still holding civilians hostage. So that's her attitude and the British attitude. So here is Robert Wood, who uh, held his hand up uh, to invoke the veto in this case. Uh, he said this, the text also of the resolution failed to acknowledge that Israel has the right to defend itself. So he's just ignoring the Fourth Geneva Convention uh, because, of course, Israel doesn't have that right uh, as an occupying power. Um, so uh, Antonio Guterres then tweeted this out uh, yesterday. The, this week, I urged the Security Council to press uh, to avert a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, and I reiterated my appeal for humanitarian ceasefire. Regret regrettably, the Security Council failed to do it, uh, but that does not make it less necessary. I promise I will not give up. So that was what he was saying. Uh, now, the issue of uh, um, UN Security Council reform has been one that the United States and particularly the United Kingdom have been pushing for a very long time. And as a result of this veto, uh, they are using the excuse uh, of there being no ceasefire vote uh, to call for reform of the United Security, uh, UN Security Council again. Uh, so they want it to be expanded. They want the veto to be removed in particular. Uh, and the UK, as I say, has been pushing on this for quite some time. Um, and But up until now, it's all been about the fact that Russia and China have been using the veto. So this is going back to July 2012, just to give an example, uh, explanation of vote on draft Syria resolution vetoed by Russia and China. Uh, and this was Britain complaining that Russia and China were basically vetoing uh, the regime change operation in Syria. So I'm just going to put this on screen for people to consider. Uh, and that is that Russia and China have used their veto to prevent war. Uh, but the West, and I'm talking the United States here, has used its veto to prevent peace. Uh, and that is uh, pretty much the situation at the moment. But this is a long-standing effort 
uh, to get the uh, UN Security Council reformed because it isn't giving permission to the West in particular to pursue its uh, regime change operations. And I think this is a pretty cynical use of it uh, that uh, the United States continues to veto every uh, effort to get a ceasefire in Gaza uh, in order to pursue this particular agenda. Uh, I've got a quick question for you, Mark. Um, would it be reasonable to expect that if there's going to be a major vote in the UN, such as, as that particular one, that, that America's vote would actually be discussed within the Senate or Congress? In order to for for the 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 proper democratic process to take place, we seem to be having these decisions that are made in the UN, and nobody's too sure who actually approved the decision that any particular country makes. In this case, it's the US, but we've also seen this with UK that serious decisions are forced through the UN, but they're never discussed in Westminster, for example. There have been times, I believe Ron Paul, the well-known Texas congressman, Republican with a libertarian streak, uh, would occasionally bring up UN matters and uh, try to be the voice of Congress, at least to a degree on that. It doesn't happen often enough, if it happens at all, Brian. Uh, certainly, maybe Thomas Massey, since he's willing to be the gadfly and willing to take all that fire, maybe he'll do it, maybe others, Bernie Sanders perhaps even, um, I may even place some calls this week. It might be a good idea to those offices and ask them, you know, if they're what they think about the U.N.'s actions, uh, the U.S. context in that. So a good question. OK, thanks, Mark. Uh, right. Now, let's uh, move to Ukraine then. And uh, uh, well, <laughs> the, sorry, uh, the U.K. is doing some. Uh, interesting things. UK and Norway have announced they are going to co-lead a coalition which aims to develop a blueprint for Ukraine's future maritime forces. So we're going to now develop uh, Ukraine's uh, navy for it. For, we're starting off by giving it a couple of minesweeping ships. Uh, and uh, this is being done under the auspices. Uh, well, we're basically funding it as in the tax pair, but uh, we're, you can see what they're, what they're doing here. What are your thoughts? Uh, one of my thoughts, well, I'm smiling as I reply, because, of course, this is all nonsense and smoke and mirrors, because the reality on the battlefield is now clearly that Ukraine has lost and the Russians have, have taken back virtually every, uh, every acre of territory that the Ukrainians took in their so-called offensive. And now the Ukrainians are in a defensive position, but they're going to be driven back by the Russians. So the Russian, uh, so Ukraine is not going to have easy access to its coast in the future. This, I think, is more rhetoric of pumping up the idea that Ukraine still exists as a nation state, and therefore it's going to need uh, um, um, naval forces. But of course, they're putting in mine hunters because um, what have we got in the Black Sea? It's awash with Ukrainian mines. Many of those mines now are drift causing a hazard for Ukrainian and other shipping. So I, I think this is this is just a game, Mike. This well, is not about creating a bona fide force. It's it's a political game. I'm going to say, I take your point about Ukraine, but I disagree with you on this because this is about the creation, in my opinion, of European defence, European Defence Union. This is all continuation of a, of a process of being following for 
uh, quite a number of years now, and and Ukraine is being used as an excuse, as a cover for that once again. But I take your point on on the situation in Ukraine and the val- the validity of that justification, because the validity isn't there. But look, this is how they're doing it. They're doing it by providing these uh, ships through UK export finance, which of course is a shell game. It means the taxpayer is paying uh, for this, and Ukraine won't be paying for it at all. Uh, and just to end on this, uh, we were talking about the war insurance. Uh, in order to give UK businesses and companies the confidence to go and do business in Ukraine. Well, now Marsh Baker, Marsh's Baker uh, Insurance Company has been uh, brought into a $50 million uh, program to provide some of this insurance, uh, this new Ukraine facility. So this is carve up what's left of Ukraine. Uh, indeed, indeed. Okay, uh, change the subject then. Uh, Mark, uh, what's the church, the Catholic Church, been up to? Well, there's been a lot of fallout over the activities and opinions and um, whatnot of Pope Francis, the first Jesuit pope in the papacy's history. And uh, it's finally coming to more of a head. It's been kind of simmering in the background for several years ever since he took over. And this is out of Newsweek magazine, this first one. This explains the basis of it. Pope excuse me, Pope sparks outrage after firing anti-LGBTQ Texas bishop. And that bishop is um, Bishop Strickland out of Tyler, Texas, a town I went through coming back to Texas here. And this is a photo here of what uh, Bishop Strickland looks like there. He's meeting Pope Francis in recent times. It says here, Pope Francis greets Bishop Joseph E. Strickland of Tyler, Texas, during a meeting with U.S. bishops from Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Texas um, during a a, a recent get-together, I believe it was in early 2020. Bishop Strickland tweeted May 12, 2023, that he rejects Pope Francis's program of undermining the deposit of faith. And what's interesting here is that Pope Francis is trying to say that it's Strickland that's undermining the Catholic faith when the facts are pretty clear that Pope Francis himself may be in the wrong. And this is a little excerpt from that article for which we showed a headline a second ago. Pope Francis has received backlash for his decision to remove Strickland of Tyler, Texas. Strickland has been a vocal critic of Francis's efforts to make the church more welcoming for the LGBTQ plus community. Strickland has publicly scrutinized Francis for the Pope's attempt to change the church's position on social issues such as transgender rights and same-sex marriage. In August, Strickland wrote an open letter to the Sons and Daughters in Christ where he reiterated the basic truths of the church, including how God sees marriage as between one man and one woman, quote, end quote, and how a disordered attempt to reject someone's undeniable biological and God-given identity should not be supported. Most recently, Strickland called Pope Francis three-week-long, he he called Francis's three-week-long closed-door meeting on controversial issues facing the church. Strickland called that a travesty. Francis hosted the meeting in October discussing issues like women in governance roles in the church and welcoming LGBTQ plus members into the church. Uh, this is a pretty clear-cut matter. I talked to some Catholic laity up in Michigan 
a father of 12 who's a, a regular attendee of traditional Catholic Mass, that, that is Latin Mass. And uh, what I basically heard is it appears that while Strickland might have went about this a little differently in how he complained to Pope Francis, uh, Catholic, Catholic doctrine and the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, the well-known book of Catholic doctrine called the CCC, all of that embodies the Catholic Church as being very firmly against same-sex marriage, very firmly against homosexual behavior, and so on and so forth. So for Francis to call out Strickland like this and actually fire him as the Bishop of Tyler is the height of irony in the eyes of the uh, members of the Catholic laity with whom I spoke. And I know a little something about this myself. So Pope Francis, I think, is finally being exposed for actually overturning the basic tenets of the Catholic faith. And instead of owning up to it, he's firing people like Strickland. So it's a very pivotal thing going on. There'll be a little bit more in the weeks ahead, guys. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, and uh, well, let's uh, end with, uh, with this. This is the uh, payment systems regulator. This is the regulator for electronic and digital payments, uh, banking payments in the UK. Uh, and uh, so they describe themselves, they say, every time anyone uses a cash machine, transfer money, transfers money, uses contactless or gets paid, they use a payment system. Uh, and so the PSR is there to look after that. Uh, now, they have published uh, a report on APP fraud. This is authorized push payment fraud. This is basically when you get these telephone calls from these dodgy people that claim that they're from your mobile phone company or whoever it happens to be. And of course, you've got to uh, make some kind of uh, payment to them uh, as a result. They're basically pretending to be an official organization. Uh, so uh, PSR has published this. Let's have a look at some of the data here. They're saying uh, that uh, the TSB, for example, bank loses uh, £348 for every million pounds of transactions that they uh, do. They are in the lead. Santander comes second with £322 uh, and uh, Metro Bank third at £280 and so on you can see so every million pounds of transactions results in that amount of fraud uh, and then they uh, talk about the number of banks or the, the which banks are the best at paying this back to customers uh, and this is uh, important because the app or sorry the psr has decided uh, that they're going to mandate uh, banks paying this money back so here's chris helmsley uh, the payment systems regulator uh, he is saying that prevention is key. That means driving change in the culture of payments to improve fraud prevention and focus all firms on protecting consumers and businesses. Uh, he went on to say uh, there are two aspects to this. First, moving to a mandatory approach uh, using the Faster Payments rulebook to include every payment firm using the Faster Payments system because, uh, the, of course, there are many other uh, institutions other than banks that are using Faster Payments. Uh, and he goes on to say, second, it means bringing in incentives on both the sending and receiving side. After all, in order to commit an APP fraud, you need control of a payment account. So uh, what they're basically saying is that uh, once these new rules come out, and they're going to be formally announced in a couple of weeks' time when these new rules come out, uh, that both the sending, receive, sending and receiving banks will have to pay half each in money back to the person who's been defrauded. Now, some people are saying, well, this is ridiculous because, of course, people that are being defrauded have been stupid enough to get themselves defrauded in the first place. And why should the banks pay and therefore bank customers pay and so on? But nonetheless, that is the direction that they're going in. And the question is why? Uh, well, maybe we get a clue from some of the other publications from the payment systems regulator. Uh, so this is uh, something that was published by them in 2020. They entitled this Challenges to Innovation. 
Um, and of course, uh, they're asking the question here, what would, what, what, sorry, would the idea of tying payments to a digital identity be welcomed in the UK? Well, of course, if fraud is a big issue, uh, then perhaps it would be welcomed in the UK. Here's another one published in uh, July 2022. PSR publishes its response to the PSR panel's digital payments initiative. And they say uh, helping to remove barriers to new digital payment services, which better meet the needs of people who currently rely on cash as a focus of the PSR panel's report focused on the potential for and for new open banking based account to account payment services. It came up with 12 recommendations covering open banking payments, the PSR's card acquiring market review, improved data collection, digital identity and fraud prevention and protection. So it's pretty obvious uh, where this is going. Uh, the banks could do a lot more uh, to prevent fraud. And of course, uh, we could be, do a lot more to educate ourselves on how to prevent being defrauded. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, that is being used, uh, it seems to me, as an effort to push ahead with the digital identity agenda. I just smile here slightly, Mike, because I remember years ago being told that when all the digital PIN numbers came in, we wouldn't have fraud. Don't sign your checks. That's old hat. All you need is a PIN number and you've got a PIN number and all this goes away. Now we've got another layer. Now we need the digital identity to lock us into the surveillance state. Uh, yes. Well, uh, Dr. David Cartland was uh, tweeting this out today. I just thought we'd end on it. Uh, we may have shown it before. I can't remember, but it's 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 valid anyway. Uh, let's inf this is uh, uh, Bill Gates. Bill, thank you. Uh, let's infect computers with viruses. A young Bill Gates, let's infect computers with viruses and then sell the antivirus software. And an older Bill Gates, let's infect people with viruses and then sell vaccines. I think that's... Uh, that sums it up. It does. Well, we'll end there. A pretty heavy UK column news, but these, these subjects need talking about. We've got very, very serious things going on. And uh, the key bit is while the suffering in the world is going on, we've got some really dangerous um, government policies, surveillance policies coming in. So we'll encourage viewers, wherever you are in the world, to think about that and think about what's happening in your own country. Final note is a very big thank you for everybody supporting the UK column. We can only do what we do with your financial support. And also a big thank you to people who've been kind enough to send us some really lovely uh, Christmas cards. So thank you for that boost towards the end of December. See you well, for extra in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Bye-bye.